Dr. Anna Lemke is Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She has published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, book chapters, and commentaries. She sits on the board of several state and national addiction-focused organizations, has testified before various committees in the United States House of Representatives and Senate, and maintains a thriving clinical practice. Dr. Lemke explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overloaded world in her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Anna Lemke, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're so excited to read your books and we'll focus on your latest Dopamine Nation. And you're going to share with us a passage to give our audience a glimpse into your work. If you could set up the passage you're going to share with us. So this is a passage from the beginning of the book where I am talking to a patient of mine named Jacob, who has a very serious a masturbation compulsive pornography addiction. So his sex addiction progressed to the point where he's an engineer and a scientist, and he actually built a masturbation machine. And I'll just go right in. Perhaps you were repulsed by Jacob's masturbation machine, as I was when I first heard about it. Perhaps you regard it as a kind of extreme perversion that is beyond everyday experience with little or no relevance to you in your life. But if we do that, you and I, we miss an opportunity to appreciate something crucial about the way we live now. We are all of a sort engaged with our own masturbation machines. Circa age 40, I developed an unhealthy attachment to romance novels. Twilight, a paranormal romance about teenage vampires, was my gateway drug. I was embarrassed enough to be reading it, much less admitting I was enthralled by it. Twilight hit that sweet spot between love story, thriller, and fantasy, the perfect escape as I rounded the corner of my midlife bend. I was not alone. Millions of women my age were reading and fanning Twilight. There was nothing unusual per se about my getting caught up in a book. I'd been a reader all my life. What was different was what happened next, something I couldn't account for based on past proclivities or life circumstances. When I finished Twilight, I whipped through every vampire romance I could get my hands on, and then moved on to werewolves, fairies, witches, necromancers, time travelers, soothsayers, mind readers, fire weirdlers, fortune tellers, gem workers. You get the idea. At some point, tame love stories no longer satisfied. So I searched out increasingly graphic and erotic renditions of the classic boy meets girl fantasy. I then go on to talk about how that progressed. And then I conclude this section by saying, what happened to me is trivial compared to the lives of those with overpowering addiction. But it speaks to the growing problem of compulsive overconsumption that we all face today, even when our lives are good. I have a kind and loving husband, great kids, meaningful work, freedom, autonomy, and relative wealth, no trauma, social dislocation, poverty, unemployment, or other risk factors for addiction. Yet I was compulsively retreating further and further into a fantasy world. Well, we appreciate the honesty. You know, this is obviously how you're able to connect with your patients and with your readers. We would say that your compulsive behavior was a bit more benign, fortunately, because I could almost see with being so aware of what's going on, whether it's the different addictions or the opioid crisis and all this awareness and treating people that sometimes you have to heal yourself in some ways. So I'm glad you were aware of it, but also it's wonderful that you can have an outlet, the imagination and what are 
artists and readers often appreciate about that. But what we like is, as well as identifying the situation with the many compulsive behaviors or the addictions to opioids or addictions to the internet or to impassioned news, or there's so many of these things that we can so easily get drawn to that you really offer a pathway out. Could you line up that thing that dopamine, the DOP, you spell out each letter and you help us to kind of be aware of the pleasure and pain impulses and how we can balance that line. Sure, I'm happy to do that. So in the book, I basically use acronym dopamine to describe a framework to intervene with compulsive overconsumption in cases of serious addiction, but also in cases of milder compulsive overconsumption that I believe we all face today. And it's based on the neuroscience and informed by the latest neuroscience about how we process pleasure and pain. So the D stands for data. And that's where we ask our patients to just tell us what they're consuming, how much and how often. Frequency and quantity matter. So it's not just the nature of our attachment to our drug of choice. And by the way, I use that term drug very broadly to describe all potentially addictive substances and behaviors. But, you know, just simply laying out how much and how often can be eye-opening. So in asking our patients what they consume, how often, what that does is not just give us the information we need to make an informed intervention, but it also brings to the forefront of the patient's consciousness what they're actually doing. Which, by the way, the human beings have a, a kind of innate ability to hide from themselves. And until we articulate to another human being, typically, or write in a journal or some other form of putting into words our behaviors, we usually don't see it for what it is. That can be a real aha moment for patients. The O stands for objectives. This is where we ask patients to reflect on why they do their drug. And people use for all kinds of reasons. They use for fun. They use to solve a problem. That problem can range from boredom, isolation to depression, anxiety. But people have good reasons even for what eventually can become irrational or unreasoned behavior. So understanding that is really important. Understanding that for ourselves and understanding that in others. The P stands for problem. So we're going through this dopamine acronym. The P stands for problems associated with use. And again, this is an interesting phenomenon in that sometimes people are able to see their problems. But many times we are in denial about the true impact of our substance use or our addictive behaviors on our lives, which is why the next part of the acronym, A, stands for abstinence, which equates to what we call the dopamine fast, which is where we ask people to give up their drug of choice for a period of time long enough to reset dopamine reward pathways. And the reason for this is many fold. The first is because it promotes insight and it really improves our ability to see true cause and effect. When we're chasing dopamine, it's very hard to see the true impact of our drug use on our lives. But after we stop for a period of time, we can really have this aha moment where we say, oh, wow, I had thought, you know, that cannabis was helping me go to sleep at night or was improving my anxiety. It's only after stopping for, you know, this period of time that I see that what felt to the moment like it was improving in my anxiety was actually making my anxiety worse. And also with digital devices, we consider ourselves, oh, I'm not really, I, I just watch a little bit of YouTube or I occasionally go on social media or I every once in a while, you know, I text people or spend maybe an hour a day on my phone. But when we really look at it, document it, and then take a break from it, we're, we're able to see, wow, I was using a lot and it was making me feel worse about myself or it was making me less able 
to invest in my true goals and to live according to my true values. So this kind of dopamine fast is really critical to have that cause and effect moment of sort of insight and inspiration. The other major piece of stopping for a while, the dopamine fast, is in order to reset reward pathways. Because what happens when we're bombarding our reward circuit with dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter, is that our brain accommodates that by downregulating our own dopamine production and transmission so that we ultimately end up in a dopamine deficit state, which is very akin to depression, anxiety, and other dysphoric psychological states. So by stopping that dopamine influx for a period of time, what we do is we tell our bodies, okay, I'm not getting dopamine from the outside. Now I've got to start making my own again. So we upregulate our own dopamine, which number one, restores a euthymic mood in many instances. Euthymia means not depressed and not manic, but just a healthy level mood. And it also allows us to take pleasure in more modest rewards, which we cannot do when we're constantly chasing this really high impact reward, which by the way, ultimately leads to tolerance where we need more and more over time to get the same effect and leads to this this very paradoxical dopamine deficit state where we're actually making ourselves more miserable through the pursuit of pleasure. So that's the A, and that's really the key intervention. When people are able to do that and come back, and typically I recommend four weeks because that's about the average amount of time it takes to reset reward pathways. Well, first of all, before they go out to do that, the M of the dopamine acronym stands for mindfulness. Mindfulness is being able to observe our thoughts and feelings without judgment and also without reacting to those and trying to get rid of or run away from those thoughts and feelings, especially uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. So this dopamine fast or abstinence trial is a great opportunity to practice mindfulness because when we can't reach for our drug of choice to quell uncomfortable feelings, we have to learn to sit with it, to observe it, to stand outside of ourselves, observe it without judgment, and also watch how remarkably these things pass over us like a wave. They are time limited. In the moment, we feel they're interminable. I will never get out of this bad feeling. I will feel this way forever. But in fact, most emotions have a very clear terminus without our doing anything at all. They resolve, they end, and we move on to another emotion because change is just the absolute a rule of the universe. So M stands for mindfulness. The I of the dopamine acronym stands for insight. We've talked about that. It's really an opportunity for a big aha moment as we begin to see the true impact of our dopamine seeking over our lives. And the N stands for next steps. That's where people come back after abstaining. They talk about the pros and cons of using, of not using, and then they make a plan going forward, a plan for the future. And most of the time, people want to go back to using their drug of choice. When it comes to technology, we have to because we can't live in the world. I mean, unless we're Amish or something, you know, we can't live in the world and not use technology. So it becomes a matter of how do I re-engage with this substance or this behavior or this technology in a healthy way that is informed by what I've learned from going through the dopamine acronym. And so that means thinking about self-binding strategies. That is to say, creating literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can press the pause button between desire and consumption. And this is really, really key because every time we're being invited to use or triggered to use or reminded of our drug, our brain is actually going through a cycle of many intoxications and many withdrawals, which are literally stressful and exhausting. Anytime we get a little dopamine hit, even if that dopamine hit comes from being reminded of our drug, we're basically then enlisting our whole cortisol system on our adrenaline gets surged. And it's just completely exhausting and it often leads to ultimately using the drug. 
So self-binding is a way of putting barriers so that we're not constantly surrounded by the drug and reminders of drug use. And self-binding strategies can take three forms, time, space, and meaning. Time is literally using time as a construct. In a way, the absence that a trial or the dopamine fast is a way to use time, right? We said, I'm not going to use for 30 days. But there are smaller, many ways we can do that in our lives. It's, I'm only going to use my drug on Thursdays or Fridays, or I'm only going to, you know, I'm only going to play video games for, you know, two hours a day on Thursdays or Fridays, or I'm only going to allow myself to smoke weed after I finish the quarter, finish my finals and graduate. So, so this, this kind of using time as sort of a way to protect ourselves. So space is the, the literal geographic barriers we put between ourselves and our drug of choice. And people with severe addiction have long known this. They don't keep their drug in the house, right? Or with technology, people can put it outside in another room or literally turn it off or literally delete an app. And then meaning has to do uh, both with categorical differences. Like, for example, a patient of mine who was addicted to video games has said, you know, I can't play League of Legends. Whenever I play League of Legends, I go down the rabbit hole, but I can play this other video game uh, with my friend. Or someone might say, you know, with a food addiction, I really can't eat sugar. Sugar is a drug for me. And as hard as it is, I need to try hard to eliminate sugar, but obviously not eat altogether, which is impossible. People might say with social media, you know, I do okay on Facebook, but Twitter is really something I can't manage my consumption. So these kinds of categorical or meaning structures. And then, of course, using sort of infusing our use with a kind of sacredness that is consistent with our values and our goals. I think that's really important too. And then finally, experiment is the last letter in the acronym. And that means that armed with the self-blinding strategies and having reset our reward pathway and having healthy baseline levels of dopamine firing, we now go back out into the world and we experiment and we see what happens. People with severe addiction often find that moderation does not work for them. And they have to go around that loop a couple of times and they eventually conclude, you know what, I'm an abstinence kind of a person. I can't use a moderation. But some people with a tremendous effort are able to use a moderation. Often they find that it's like takes the fun out of it. So they also ultimately settle for abstinence because moderation isn't fun and it's really hard. And then there are people who probably don't quite, you don't meet threshold criteria for severe addiction. People with minor compulsion probably are able to moderate, you know, with planning and forethought and uh, self-finding. And in a clinical environment, I don't know how it's always possible to measure the dopamine levels, particularly if some of these activities are taking place when you're not there. Although I was interested, I believe, I don't I know if this is accurate, that chocolate can increase dopamine by, did you say 50% or sex by 100% or nicotine by 150% or amphetamines a thousand. But these dopamine rushes, which are not illegal substances necessarily. How do you monitor that? How do you get them to self-monitor to be, as you say, so that they're not hiding from themselves? And it's a really an accurate measure. Well, first of all, let me just say that the data that we have on how much dopamine is released with various substances or activities is based on rodent studies. These are studies in mice and rats where we stuck a probe in their brain to measure dopamine firing above tonic baseline because we all are firing dopamine in kind of steady state level, you know, in their reward circuit in response to certain substances and behaviors. So we're extrapolating from that to humans. But truthfully, we don't have similar measurements in humans. We don't really know. You know, we know that the reward circuit lights up in humans when engaging in these activities, but we don't have comparable quantitative measures because we don't stick probes, you know, in, in human brains. 
The other thing is that these rodent studies don't really account for drug of choice, which is a really important concept, which is to say what may release a lot of dopamine in your brain may not release very much in my brain and vice versa, right? And so we all have kind of our drug of choice. And the key thing about the world that we live in today is that there are so many more drugs than there used to be that we've all become more vulnerable to the problem of addiction. You know, I'm a case in point. I, I really am, don't have much of a dopamine surge in response to would say alcohol or nicotine, caffeine doesn't wake me up. But clearly uh, this medium, a particular medium of a certain genre of novel, you know, was, is, was very potent for me. So how do we know when we've encountered our drug of choice? Well, it's not really that hard. It's the thing that once we start using fills a very strong, positive emotion, and it's very difficult for us to stop once we started engaging in that activity. And as soon as we do stop, we experience a big come down. So I'll never forget my, my three year, when my son was about three years old, I mean, we would put on Casper the Friendly Ghost cartoons and he had the older sister, our daughter. And, you know, the plan was for them to watch for half an hour. And when we turned it off after half an hour, my daughter was fine. She just went off and, you know, did something else. My son would have a complete temper tantrum, which lasted at least as long as the cartoon did. And so that was a very early indicator for us that this was really electric for him, that, that he very engaged by this. And to this day, of all of our children, he is the child that probably spends the most time on his phone. He's on social media, lots of clicking and swiping. And he, you know, because of the way he was raised, he tries to be mindful of it and moderate it. But this is clearly very, very reinforcing for him. So you see that inter-individual difference. Yeah, and, you know, so many of my patients over the years with severe addiction have told me that they knew from the first exposure, right? The first time I saw pornography, I knew was I was in trouble. The first drink I had, I, I knew this was going to totally transform my life. Usually it did, you know, initially for good and then for very bad. It's interesting because a lot of people who are addicted to things in a quite hardcore way, maybe they could go through that abstinence or they would find a replacement drug. Sometimes that's something that could be more benign and that some of these addictions are, as you say, they can be founded on something positive. We can be addicted to love and love is something wonderful and it's about connection. So it's how do you find that balance to keep a distance between something that has so many potential positives as well? Yeah. So this is, you know, a very important question. What's the difference between a passion or a a creative, all-encompassing interest and a kind of a pathological, maladaptive engagement. I think part of the problem here is language. When I use the word addiction, I'm really talking about a maladaptive engagement with a substance or behavior characterized primarily by the continued compulsive use of that substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Sometimes people use the word habit. I don't really like the word habit because habit suggests a much more benign level of engagement, also a level of automaticity that's often advantageous, right? We know how to tie our shoes. We don't have to think about it every time out of habit, having done it so many times. And that's very advantageous. If we had to think every time we tied our shoes, how to tie our shoes, you know, the days would be a lot more exhausting. But when we have that kind of automaticity with maladaptive consumptive behaviors, now we're talking about addiction uh, or potential addiction or on our way to addiction. It's a spectrum disorder, mild, moderate to severe. But then we, you know, then we have to worry about it. So how do we, again, how do we know whether we're engaging in an adaptive and healthy way? I think the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders does a pretty good job laying out those criteria for addiction. 
which can broadly be summarized as the four C's, control, craving, um, compulsions, and consequences. Control means using in an out-of-control way more than I planned on. Cravings means having an overwhelming physical or psychological need or desire to use that feels like it's the only important thing in that moment and everything else it falls away, a kind of a, like a feeling of I must use as a matter of survival. Compulsion means a lot of mental real estate occupied by the drug. Thinking about the drug, kind of narrowing of our focus on the drug, as well as our narrowing of pleasure only around that drug. And also, again, this level of automaticity, where I initiate drug use without really planning to or thinking about it, which is a little bit different than the control piece. Control is like, once I start, I can't stop. But compulsion is like, oh, I did. I started and I didn't even know I started, right? I reached for my phone and had planned not to and didn't even know I'd reach for it. And then finally, consequences, especially the continued use despite consequences, which is really the sine qua of severe addiction. So those are the things to look for. Other soft signs of addiction are lying about our use. So many people with severe addiction talk about leading the double life or having the lying habit. Um, what's interesting to me is that in severe addiction, people get to a point where they're not only lying about their drug use, they're also lying about stuff completely unrelated to their drug use, like what they had for breakfast, uh, because lying becomes uh, just a kind of a way of life, a reflexive default that then encompasses their entire existence, which is why getting to recovery very often involves what I call radical truth telling or embracing this effort to be completely honest, not just about our consumptive habits, but also about even uh, small things in our lives. So we're talking about the struggle with quantifying dopamine levels. And, you know, you have the dsm 5 which has all the classifications for what exactly to look at when looking at addiction. But I wanted to know from your perspective, where do you identify the line between a seemingly healthy binge and then finding that it's crossing over into an addiction? So again, a little bit of problem of language here. When we use the term binge, what we're saying with that word binge was that the person used an amount that was went beyond a healthy or moderate amount. So we have the best data for this for alcohol. So we consider an alcohol binge in women to be four or more standard drinks for men, uh, five or more standard drinks. And we base that on epidemiologic data showing that people who have that amount in a single sitting, and a single sitting is a one 24-hour period, are more likely to suffer toxic consequences like pancreatitis, liver disease, cancer, falls, accidents associated with alcohol consumption than people who consume less than that even if they don't consume every day. But unfortunately, you know, alcohol is the only substance for which we have that kind of quantity data. We don't have that for things like cannabis. We don't know technically what a cannabis binge looks like, or to say that in another way, we don't know what healthy cannabis consumption looks like. We don't know what healthy social media consumption looks like. We don't know what healthy donut consumption looks like or romance novel consumption looks like. What is very clear is that quantity and frequency do matter. And that the, you know, the further along on the x-axis people get, and just to say the more they use and the more often they use, the more likely they are to meet criteria for addiction. Daily use, in particular, uh, in my experience, is associated many times with addictive use. But then when we think about digital drugs, we're all on our devices daily. So, you know, how does that translate? We don't really know. When it comes to things like social media, what we have is lots of data showing that People who use, on average, more social media are people who also struggle 
with more anxiety, more depression, more suicidality, more eating disorders. What the question there, though, is cause and effect. Did the engagement with the social media, which I consider to be a drug, you know, lead to those symptoms or did they start out having those symptoms, which led them to more social media? It's probably a feed forward cycle going in both directions, right? People who are, you know, have emotional and psychological distress are more likely to use drugs and people who use more drugs are more likely to have a psychological and, and emotional distress. So in our own lives, you know, for your listeners or for yourself, as you're thinking about, gosh, how do I know if I've crossed the line? I mean, alcohol, you know, if you're having probably more than two or three standard drinks on any given day, you're probably crossing the line. Then again, you know, all, all good things in moderation, including moderation, you know, we all, I think there's probably a rare day when I don't slightly overeat, right? It, it's just, it, it's hard. We're wired to grab as much pleasure as we can, when we can. That's how we've survived over millions of years of evolution in a world of scarcity. The problem is we don't live in that world anymore. So one of the things that I like to say is like, everybody has a little bit of an eating disorder or everybody's a little bit addicted to our devices. And I think part of my messaging is just like becoming aware of it, normalizing it, acknowledging that we're all struggling in this way and helping each other try to find the balance. So thinking about all of the stimulus that we have to face that we tend to get addictions to, do you think that all addiction is inherently bad? Or in a society, are we all technically addicts in our own way? Because I'm an, you know, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, when I use the word addiction, I'm really talking about having crossed the line from basically healthy use with an occasional slip to somebody who's really caught in the vortex of compulsive overconsumption with consequences and typically needing help from others, whether or not they are professionals, but feeling like, oh, boy, this is unmanageable, as they say in 12 Steps, my life has become unmanageable. But on the other hand, I think your point is a good one, which is to say that, and it's one of the main points of my book, Dopamine Nation, that we are living in this addictogenic world where almost all human behaviors and substances have become drugified in one way right? Social media has drugified human connection. Our food has been drugified by the addition of salt, fat, sugar. Reading is drugified the way that, you know, these genre novels fill this sort of gaping hole of kind of compulsive consumption among their readership. People always wanting more. They're written now in a formulaic way to make sure that every chapter ends on a cliffhanger. These series are written so that the first book ends on a cliffhanger. You can't not go to the second one. The Netflix binges where you get the next episode automatically fills unless you do something to stop it. You know, these are all little ways in which our lives have been engineered to keep us clicking and swiping and eating and smoking and drinking to the detriment of the globe. When 70% of global deaths are due to diseases caused by modifiable risk factors and the top three are smoking, inactivity, and overeating or diet. So we're literally titillating ourselves to death. Yeah, and I would add to that that globally we're addicted to fossil fuels. This even does include those in developing nations. Their energy isn't always clean. We're addicted to fossil fuels. And I don't know how addiction psychology can be applied to help us. We're making transitions. Great. We're moving the right direction now. But it certainly does seem to fall under that line of continuing on with behaviors that have very negative consequences, including death. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we're clearly not just harming ourselves with our compulsive overconsumption, we're also harming our planet. And one of the things that happens as people become addicted when they're in their addiction cycle, they're very prone to blame other people. 
for their problems to kind of develop a kind of victim narrative where they must use because of X, Y, and Z reasons caused by other people where they deserve or they need their drug. And I think it's interesting to reflect on that, you know, with reference to fossil fuels or other sort of comforts that people have gotten used to where people would do, well, how could I possibly not have my thermostat set at that amount? I would be uncomfortable in my home if I tolerated a little bit of but people, they could put on sweaters. I mean, but Jimmy Carter, that's what Jimmy Carter said when he got into office, turn down your thermostat and wear a sweater. And he was just absolutely lambasted for that. He was just Hillary for a daring to suggest that maybe people should go with a little bit less. Yeah. And sometimes it's about, you know, we emphasize mindfulness, like we want part of what we're seeking. Some people, you were talking about reading and I still find it overall benign with the romance novels as far as <laughs> compared to the masturbation machine. Yeah, right. Dr. Anna Levkate poses a truly important question asking, in this world of technology, how do we re-engage with our drugs of choice in a healthy way? We are all at risk of forming overindulgent tendencies towards our drug of choice in today's society because there are so many more drug-like stimuli that we encounter daily. For example, it is so easy to overdose on our phones. You go on TikTok to blow off some steam and relax for five minutes, and then all of a sudden it's midnight and you've done nothing all day. Happens to the best of us. A way to recognize and cut back on screen overload consumption is to utilize your device's screen time settings, which shows your hourly, daily, weekly, monthly activity on your phone. Dr. Lemke uses the acronym dopamine as a framework to help identify and intervene with our compulsive dopamine influxes when engaging with certain stimuli to identify mild compulsion and serious addiction. The D in dopamine stands for data. Taking a look at your device's screen time can be a helpful first step in recognizing patterns of overconsumption. As data analysis and personal recognition of behavior is a necessary step in moderating overindulgence. Dr. Lemke remarks that technology is designed to keep us engaged. And that's why there isn't much of an effort from companies to decrease harmful screen time. With her phones, maybe using the screen time data will help some, but she suggests that the best way to get away from the data overconsumption is to put down our phones completely for a portion of time. Dr. Lemke refers to pleasure pain systems, which means that certain stimulus provide us with dopamine, pleasure, and when that stimulus is taken away, we have to face the pain caused by the lack of dopamine. One of the methods of resetting dopamine pathways she discusses is called self-binding. There are several self-binding systems that she recognizes. This method allows for the person who is struggling with overconsumption to wean themselves off of their drug of choice chronologically in timing themselves and cutting down the portions of stimulus intake. Crucially, she addresses that those who struggle with severe addiction may not be successful reducing compulsive and indulgent behavior with this method, and may come to find out that their best option for quitting their drug of choice is abstinence. She highlights that addiction recovery is a learning process about oneself. She addresses the individuality of addiction, which goes hand in hand with recognition of personal dopamine influx triggers. Dr. Lemke reduces the stigma of addiction by highlighting the danger of terminology when talking about levels of dopamine overconsumption. She importantly identifies that when she says addiction, she means a maladaptive engagement with a substance or behavior, which can be identified by continued compulsive use of that substance or behavior, despite the harm it may cause. 
With her definition and usage of what is called the four C's, it can be easier to recognize addiction and decrease harm that overindulgent behaviors can cause. Now back to the interview. I think of other reading, like news, the way news is presented. Now we want to be informed, but how do we seek out those sources of news that are both accurate, but don't fuel angry reactions and all the social media that's related to that? Right. Well, news is fascinating because news is now engineered to be addictive, right? It's that sort of 24-7 sensational presentation through this visual medium. And what's so interesting about our consumption of news is how little new information we actually glean per unit time we spend getting our news, especially if we're getting it from social media. But what happens is that it really engages our novelty seeking and our desire for dopamine, which looks for something similar, but with just a slight variation. So that really where we get to a point where we're not chasing new information, although we tell ourselves that we're really chasing dopamine and wanting to experience the emotional reaction that we get from certain types of news stories whether it's a validation of our own beliefs and values or uh, that kind of communal outrage um, when people experience an emotion at the same time that other people are experiencing an emotion, that releases quite a lot of dopamine because, of course, we're social tribal creatures. And that's one of the ways that we wire together is that we have the same emotional reaction together. And that's very reinforcing. And so, of course, you're right there in Silicon Valley and at Stanford, where a lot of this stuff was engineered. Well, so much to do with technology, not just social media, but you are aware of how it was. And you've done many conversations, I know, within the books and with your colleagues there about how social media and other technologies have been made addictive. Is there a positive side? Are there some positive technologies? We know there's this for monitoring, you know, the number of hours you're on your device, but are there some other new ways where, you know, positive instances of AI that can watch our behavior and, and give helpful reminders when they can't have a consultation with Dr. Anna Lemke? Right. Yeah. There's a ton of work now looking at how we can re-engineer or patch the AI that's currently sort of driving these interfaces to make it easier for people to manage their consumption. But so far, there's not a lot of evidence that it's working. So the time management things, unfortunately, people just tend to overwrite those or to not want to look at the amount of time that they're spending on their devices. You know, so I'm not seeing a lot of encouraging stuff there. And basically what you have is you have a fundamental structural problem. These technologies are engineered literally to keep us clicking and swiping. You can't ask them in a way it's very difficult for them to have their product that's not engaging. Now, there's a big push to do this to see, okay, what if we get rid of the likes or what if we eliminate the bottomless bowls or what if we get rid of the alerts and the push notifications or what if we go to grayscale and make the images? And I think all those can work as nudges and be helpful, but I think we also need to start looking more proactively at having time where we literally are just not touching our device distance from the actual device itself. And so I think there's some movement in that direction as well. Yeah, it's so, so difficult. It goes back to what you said, because the monitoring, like other addictions are, I mean, it's related to devices often, but it is work, you know, you can, and that can have a positive development. You might be doing very good work. You might be a wonderful, inspiring teacher even, but sometimes it can even draw on your store of energy and being aware of that is quite difficult. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously this technology has so many wonderful things about it. And I'm the last person to say that it's all awful. There is wonderful, meaningful, positive connections that people have made all over the world that would not be possible without this technology. Our ability to learn through this technology from human beings, from images, from enduring online types of lessons, just the maths and access to information, which is also daunting and gives us this experience of information overload, but is also great, you know, to learn a lot of things and especially people who live in places where they otherwise wouldn't have access. So lots and lots of great things. I'm not saying it's all bad, but what I am saying is that it is innately highly reinforcing. And so therefore we need to look at that part of it too. And I'm a little bit addicted to just learning from people who have a lot to share. And I wondered if that was bad. And is endless curiosity a bad thing? I hope not. I hope it's, it's all right. somewhere on the positive side. So I was wondering, is in your studies, as you observe, you know, men and women and people on different places on the spectrum, are there different addictions that are separated along those lines. I don't know why I'm asking this, but I just had done this interview with the author, Lars Chitka. This is different again, but it's about the mind of a bee. And he said, female bees and how they gather nectar and they're insatiable, say. They'll keep on going. They'll keep on going. And the males are more laid back once they've got enough. They just <laughs> keep on going. So I was wondering in terms of these different addictions, where if you found it, you know, mapping them along different addictions along sexual lines. Yeah. So, well, first of all, look at historical trends. One thing that's very interesting is that women for many generations were relatively insulated from the problem of addiction. But in the last two generations or the last 30 years or so, we've seen vastly increased rates of addiction to drugs and alcohol among women. Alcohol is one example. So whereas previously the ratio of men with alcohol addiction to women with alcohol addiction has been between five to one and two to one. With millennials, starting with the millennial generation, it's now one to one. So women in the United States are as likely to be addicted to alcohol as men and other drugs are quickly following suit. So this is an important and really seismic shift in the history of addiction in the United States and other developed countries. If you look at all drugs across the world, the only drug which women are more likely to be addicted to than men is benzodiazepines, Xanax, Valium, Clonopin. That's also interesting. And, you know, you can extrapolate a few assumptions. One of them is that women are also more likely to go and seek medical help for medical conditions. And benzodiazepines are very often obtained through a medical prescription. There's some initial data suggesting that social media is especially dangerous for women and young girls. And I have certainly seen in my practice that video games and pornography appear to be especially prevalent among boys and young men. So I think there are gender differences and there's both my clinical experience and also some epidemiologic data that suggests those differences as well. So in your previous book, Drug Dealer MD, you're talking about addictions and the opioid crisis, and it's really eye-opening on so many levels. Just help break down the opioid crisis. I don't know if this statistic is still true. It's around 80% of opioid use is in America. Well, there are a couple of different statistics. If you look at hydrocodone products, which are a specific opioid, I believe the data are that 80% of the world's hydrocodone is consumed 
by the United States. So that's huge. If you look at opioids overall, all different types of prescription opioids or pharmaceutically manufactured opioids, I think 30% of the world's opioids are consumed by the United States, which is still a very large and disproportionate share. So yes, the United States is a country in which more opioids are prescribed and more opioids are consumed than any other country in the world. And the reasons for it? Well, it's complicated, but it goes back to the 1980s and the importation of the hospice movement here in the United States. The hospice movement was this movement to try to help people at the very end of life and this acknowledgement that people were dying in agony. And perhaps we needed to be more liberal with opioid prescribing at the end of life. And it was imported from Europe, came to the U.S. in the 80s and was, I think, appropriately so championed by many pain specialists in this country who realized and we weren't doing enough for our aging and disabled populations who were dying in a great deal of distress. Unfortunately, what happened was that some of the messages to advocate for more liberal use of opioids at the end of life got co-opted by the opioid pharmaceutical industry, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin and others, who then began using that same message to teach doctors that opioids were safe in any kind of pain situation, even a minor ankle sprain or a wisdom tooth removal or a tummy ache or really any reason at all. And they did that by essentially adulterating the science and masking a few not very robust data points as robust science when in fact they were really just marketing messages. For example, this idea that less than 1% of patients will get addicted to opioids as long as they're being prescribed by a doctor, or this idea that patients who are taking opioids who look like they're getting addicted aren't really addicted, they're pseudo-addicted, which is to say they're in pain and need more opioids to be prescribed by the doctor, not fewer opioids. So these kinds of messages uh, pervaded science in the 90s, end of the 90s, and really the first uh, decade and a half of this century, and absolutely transformed the way that doctors approach pain and approach opioid prescribing such that uh, basically doctors became like vending machines for anybody who walked into the door. But as we saw a fourfold increase in opioid prescribing, uh, especially chronic opioid prescribing at high doses over the decade and a half of this century, we also saw a fourfold increase in people dying from prescription opioids and being admitted to treatment centers for addiction to prescription opioids. Now, along about the 2012, you know, the CDC said, hey, we have a serious opioid epidemic here and it's being caused by overprescribing of prescription opioids. So there's been a gradual scaling back since then, about a 40 to 50% decrease nationally in opioid prescribing. But unfortunately, opioid overdeaths uh, have continued to go up massively. And that's because what originally started out as an addiction to prescription opioids has now transitioned to illegal opioids like heroin, illicit fentanyl. So now what we're seeing is you know, this massive increase in deaths being driven primarily now by fentanyl having adulterated counterfeit pill product, infiltrated heroin market, but also become a demand market of its own. People who are addicted to opioids who now need more and more potent and cheaper sources uh, to continue their addiction. And this also relates to dopamine nation, as you're talking about, we have to be able to embrace and appreciate pain, you know, and how do we then rebuild the infrastructure within the medical system and to you know, reprioritize the doctor-patient relationship? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, our healthcare system is really founded on this idea of patients as customers. It really looks to the quick fix to make patients feel more comfortable in the short term without, you know, acknowledging that some of these short-term fixes actually harm people in the long run. The system is not well set up for chronic relapsing and remitting diseases. 
neither chronic pain conditions nor addiction, which is its own chronic relapsing and remitting disease. I think it's always important to emphasize that there are people with terrible agonizing pain out there. And if opioids used long-term really worked, I would be the first one to prescribe them. But the data shows that although opioids are effective short-term for pain when taken daily over long periods of time, especially at high doses, the risks very clearly outweigh the benefits and the benefits are marginal. So for example, a study, the SPACE trial showing, uh, comparing, for example, non-opioids like Tylenol to opioids in people with chronic pain like low back, hip or knee pain, found that uh, neither one was very effective at managing chronic pain. And uh, opioids certainly were not superior to Tylenol and other non-opioids and had significantly more medication-related side effects. And for you personally, what is, you know, drawn you or made you gravitate to kind of broken people or people finding their way through and helping them heal and on their route to transformation? You know, when they come to you, like what are some of the things that you ask them or that you're looking for to help them build resilience? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, I guess what attracts me to broken people is that I'm a broken person myself. So I feel quite a lot of, uh, you know, kinship with people who struggle with mental illness and addictions. And, you know, I consider it a great privilege, actually, to work with these patients who open up the most private part of their lives and trust me with their stories. And I really just consider myself to be a witness to their journey. And I'm quite honored to have the privilege to do that. I just wanted to know, ever since the book, do you feel like there's less stigma that is surrounding addiction in your personal life? Have you seen any type of reaction? I think that stigma has gotten a lot less over the last 10 to 20 years. So for example, just in terms of the number of students I have now who are interested in learning about addiction, medical students, residents, there is a lot of interest, which is great. You know, 15, 20 years ago, I couldn't find a medical student interested in addiction if I looked under every rock. There just was nobody out there interested in this work, people who were drawn to this work, people who had some kind of personal experience. That was my case. Like I realized, oh, I'm actually a bad psychiatrist because I'm ignoring this problem and there are so many people struggling with the problem. Uh, so today, that's not the case. I mean, we have an addiction medicine fellowship. We have 41 applicants for you know, our one-year fellowship, which is just incredible. The, the number of applications are going up every year. So I think in terms of being medicine anyway, there's a lot of stigma. I think in society too, for example, surveys asking Americans whether or not they think addiction is a brain disease have shown that about 70% of Americans now believe addiction is a brain disease. That's really good because previously a majority of people thought that it was a character flaw or a moral problem. So I think we're making progress. Yes. And as you think about the future and the challenges we face and the kind of world that we're leaving the next generation, what teachers or life lessons were important to you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, well, I think just stay open and curious and don't shy away from doing things that are hard. Don't shy away from asking the hard questions. And I guess one of the things that I really do recommend to young people is to not necessarily be looking always over the fence, to, you know, to try to find their, their passion or the thing that they were meant to do, but instead, you know, stop and remain still and look around at what is already in their lives that they could do to make a contribution. I think many times we've had this kind of restless sense of, oh, I need to go and find my passion or I need to go and do this or do that. When there's something right in front of us that is already calling us or we're already set up to offer and we sort of minimize it. And yet when we really immerse ourselves in the lives that we've been given, you know, we can make an incredibly valuable contribution in an iterative way day after day. 
And we really find a lot of purpose and meaning there. Oh, completely. The inner journey. In closing, we should say that the value of counseling, talking therapy enables us to build a sense of coherence in our lives. And everyone is different, of course, but anything that helps us make sense of our experiences and understand them is a big step towards wellness and connection. Well, thank you, Dr. Anna Lemke, for sharing your insights into the neuroscience of addiction and this dopamine nation and helping us understand how we can redraw our balance of pleasure and pain to regain a sense of joy and get control of our compulsive behaviors so we can create positive futures and live lives of greater contentment, purpose, and meaning. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. You're very welcome. My pleasure. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Catherine Ritter with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Catherine Ritter. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Higginbach. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative work for review, just drop us a line at team at Thanks for listening.